Listen up, normies. It's time to talk some shit. This is a Scooble cast where we talk holy shit about what it means to follow Jesus in the sacred chaos of the 21st century. My name is Benjo. I'm a 20-something anarcho-whatever pastor committed to creating safe spaces for figuring out faith, doing the work, and getting up to holy mischief wherever and whenever we need to. So for the next chunk of time, I'm just a talking head on a podcast, and you're listening to this for some reason, so good luck to you. Let's get it. Everything has gone wrong. Everything's wrong right now. I'm just kidding. Nothing. Um, well, a lot of things are wrong, but um, this right here is right. I am in a hotel. I uh, stepped out for a quick little um, espresso, and um, we're going to continue this um, series. Uh, I have put in resignation for uh, the church that I work at. Um, This is a surprise tactic I use to withhold labor so that they will um, pay better. So... Don't uh, get all too excited that I'm leaving church. Um, fuck you guys. I'm still staying in church, idiots. I'm just um, trying to get uh, my paycheck right and so uh, and the paycheck of my coworkers. Um, people tight-fisted these days and um, can't afford an apartment on a single salary. So, gotta do it. Uh, I'm still gonna go to church. So, anyway. That's it. It sounds like news, like newsworthy, but um, this kind of thing I do quite often. I'm kind of a nuisance to the church. Um, so, yeah. Anyway. So, we're going to continue this uh, little series that we got going on. We're just going to be talking about um, the. We're going to be debunking fucking evangelicalism again and just like the truths that they tell us. I don't know if I ever assigned a series title to this, um, but hey, I'm in a fucking hotel room in Boise, dude. This is Boise. You know what people do in Boise? They suck on potatoes, man. That's why they don't like wearing masks because it inhibits the sucking on potatoes, man. And also, people in Boise... Some of you guys are from Boise, and I am absolutely, um, <laughs> I'm absolutely throwing this in your face. You guys are like, oh, Boise is like, it's not that crazy in, uh, the code is not that crazy in Boise. And I'm like, well, you all fucking got it. Every single one of you who's told me that's not that crazy have gotten COVID, and y'all can't still y'all still can't taste. Not that it mattered too much because eat I don't know tequila, lime, fucking pasta from Gap. I don't know. You guys eat at the Gap in Boise? You guys are backwater. Um, some of you guys are nice, um, but uh, I'm here in Boise, and I was looking for one wine shop, one wine shop. Just one wine shop so that I could buy a bottle of wine that uh, isn't poison or is not made of foxes. 
Um, because if you machine harvest your vineyard, there's fucking foxes and spider eggs in your wine. Um, I digress. There's one wine shop. It's called City Wine Store. And uh, it's not great. Uh, but it's better than everything else that I saw. So I'm going to be uh, getting quite a bit of wine here. Oh, shoot. I just unplugged my... Unplugged my... This is a bad episode. Um, it's already going pretty bad. And I think it's because I'm in a hotel in Boise. And the, 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 the window, man, the window is shining into my eye. It's shining into my eye. Okay, we'll, we'll just get into this because I don't, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. Um, it is early. It's cold as, um, it's cold as the devil's gonads. Um, and I'm sipping on this espresso. That's, f- you know, it's fine. It's honestly fine. Um, okay, we're going to continue this series. We're just questioning commonly held assumptions and beliefs concerning capitalism itself and also capitalist perceptions of our world and so these beliefs are either um, unconsciously internalized affecting our everyday lived realities and our relationships without our being aware of them or they're consciously accepted and thought of as common sense so throughout this um, I guess series of episodes we just want to question how true these common sense beliefs really are and we're engaging in this questioning and critical reflectioning critical reflectioning we are engaging in this critical reflectioning because um at least for me we are remembering the crucified one the first the the, the first who had to question the way things were in the common sense of the oppressive, exploitative, exclusive power structures before he realizes he needed to seek their transformation. So last week or two weeks ago, we questioned the idea that the production of wealth always leads to well-being, that capitalism seeks maximum wealth production for the sake of the social harmony. Today's episode is, is a furthering of that um, of that line of questioning. It's uh, questioning the belief that capitalism guarantees us a rising tide that lifts all boats, economic growth, a booming market, or a rising GDP ultimately benefits everyone in this frame of, uh, a way of framing the world. So we're going to take it the last four decades within the U.S. And then we'll talk about winners and losers and finally we'll briefly reflect on the sociality of Paul's Christology. Okay, so from the late 40s to the mid 70s, wages and compensation rose relatively in tandem with economic expansion and growth, meaning that as the US economy grew, so did the paychecks of workers. Now that doesn't mean that all people everywhere or even in the US benefited Um, from this equally, but for workers, compensation to relatively rise in tandem with worker productivity sounds outright make-believe. Because the workers continued to make the same amount. Um, When we compare it to what the vast majority of U.S. workers have known these last uh, four decades, plus in the um, mid-1970s, last four decades, Um, Because in the mid-1970s, the relationship between rising worker productivity and worker compensation started to change. And to be clear, when we talk about rising worker productivity, we're talking about the fact that the average worker produces more goods and services, right, more value in less time. So it's a 
uh, today, production slash uh, non-managerial workers are producing way more value than a worker could a decade ago, five decades ago, a century ago. But that hasn't meant that the majority of workers and their families in and their communities have benefited from this in in um in an equitable way. According to an Economic Policy Institute report from 1948 to 1973, worker productivity increased over 96%. Get get that, man. Like, wow. This hourly compensation of a typical production non-supervisory worker, um, that's 96%, um, rose 91%. So productivity rose 96%. Compensation rose 91%. But the rising productivity didn't stop in the 70s. From 1973 to 2013, productivity increased another 74%. But the hourly compensation of the workers only rose 9 So between 1948 and 73, worker compensation rose in tandem with rising worker productivity. I mean, yeah. That makes sense. But from 1973 on, while labor has continued to produce more and more value in less time, the surplus has not gone to the employees actually doing the work. U.S. American low- and middle-income earners um, since the 70s have not seen their wages rise in tandem with productivity like their workers did in the mid-20th. So if workers have increasingly produced more and more value, where has all the fucking surplus gone? If not to the increasingly more productive workers, their families, and their communities themselves, where's the money going? The report continues. Between 1973 and 2013, the average wage of the bottom 90% of earners grew a whopping 15%, while the top 1% of earners saw their average wage rise 138%. In the same period, the 50th percentile median wage workers, right, the worker who made more than half the workforce um, and less uh, than the other half, saw their wages rise just 6%. That's less than uh, 0.2% per year. The bottom 10th percentile wage was worse off as that wage fell a whopping 5%, despite the continual growth. Another report on wage trends between 1979 and 2017, uh, this one by the Congressional Research Service, the CRS, and it's in 2017, reported that with the exception of white women, wages of the bottom 10th percentile fell in real terms for all low-wage worker groups. And by the 10th percentile, they mean the workers who made more than uh, one-tenth of the workforce and less than everybody else. Men's wages at the bottom 10th percentile in general fell by 14.6%. However, Hispanic males experienced the largest percentage decline, 8.9% down followed by a 7.6 decline for white males to $13 and a 6% decline for black males to $10, while in women's wages for the last four decades at the 10th percentile rose by a whopping 1.7%. Again, amidst significant rising productivity, white women from the 10th percentile saw their wages rise to $11 at minimum wage. 
Black women at the 10th percentile saw their wages decline to $9.50. Hispanic women saw a decline to $9. The differences are incredibly important. We can't fully address this for a decade-long wage repression amidst unprecedented profits without addressing the racial and gender disparities. But whether you're a white male or Hispanic female, the 10th percentile is unlivable. It's unlivable. It's impoverished. People of all genders, races, and ethnicities have more in common with each other than they do with those who employ them, who are renting to them, who are loaning to them. But middle-wage workers, middle workers aren't faring that much better either. Again, while productivity exploded between 1978 and 2017, the same report shows that white males are the 50th percentile median wage right? The workers that make more than half the workforce and less than the other half. They saw a mere 2.5% raise from $25.33 to $25.96. That's a 63 cent raise over 38 years. While both black and Hispanic males saw their wages drop to $18 and $16.83. For female workers of the 50th percentile, whites, blacks, and Hispanics all got raises, but the gender wage gap profoundly remains, as do the racial pay gaps. White females of the 50th percentile median wage in 2017 made $21.06, whereas black females made $16 dollars and 35 in hispanic females made 15 dollars so if you put the 50th percentile median wage of hispanic females right next uh right 15 dollars next to the 50th percentile median wage of white males 25 dollars and 96 the difference is glaring but again if the vast majority of workers wages of all gendered and racialized groups have been repressed for so long where did all the surplus they made go Well, the answer to that is obvious. The corporations and businesses who employed all those increasingly productive workers, right? Inequality.org reports that the average top 0.1% makes 188 times that of the bottom 90 in 2017. The bottom 90% has seen little change in the average paycheck income from roughly $29,600 in 1979 to $36,200 in 2017. The top 1%, 0.1%, saw their annual income rise from $622,000 to $2,756,865. That's average. But this hasn't this this hasn't meant that we're simply slightly better off the cost of living. Housing, education, healthcare, and transportation has far outpaced our pressed wages. Fewer and fewer people are ever able to own a home in their lifetime. I just recently had to have a conversation with my mom where um she's wondering why I'm I'm spending this much on this good and this much on this good and why I went to school for this, but I'm doing this as a career. Um, And I just, like, why don't I save for a house? And I just told her that, Mom, I don't live in that world anymore. I don't live in a world where that's possible for somebody like me. Not unless I start selling out. Not unless I start becoming a fucking consultant, whatever the fuck that means. And then I just start making, like, gobs of cash. I don't know. I, I couldn't do it. And so I, I'm just enjoying my life and I'll, I'll probably rent for the rest of my life. 
But I just have to have the conversation with my mom because we don't live in that same world, the world that she was able to grow up in. And in fact, we are only able to own our home because we lived in a foreclosed neighborhood, mass foreclosures during the housing bubble pop, where the big head honchos of of Wall Street were shorting houses and giving people bum loans and then reaping all the interest. Super bad. Anyway, digression. But more and more people are, uh, 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 sorry, fewer and fewer people are ever able to do things like own homes, afford health care, uh, pay for ki- children's education without government help. And um, more and more people are making payments on their houses up until retirement. Others are using the retirement money to finally purchase their house. And increasingly, we're seeing the elderly who do own their own homes do something called a reverse mortgage in which they sell their homes back to the bank for monthly payments to, sub- to subsidize the rising cost of living. The wealthiest nation in the world has an estimated 140 million adults and children who are either impoverished or making low, unlivable wages. These standards are low, people. Why the fuck are we okay with this? Which means that we have tens of millions more who are in rough, if not unlivable, living conditions. That doesn't even include the many who may be better off but are forced to work their lives away in order to simply make ends meet or avoid the reality of bankruptcy or an extension of student debt and maybe even into poverty. I thought about extending the same rising tide myth internationally, but I'll save that for another time. For now, we have seen that within the U.S., the unprecedented economic growth, right, the growth of that good old fucking GDP, we've grown the GDP since the, since the oil slicks or whatever, I don't know what the fuck that, whatever, bad accent, but the, the growth of the good old GDP has not benefited everyone. It hasn't even benefited the majority of people living in the richest nation in the world, let alone the most vulnerable and impoverished. Uh, On top of the gender and racial wage disparities that remain, we aren't even mentioning the more significant wealth gaps. The majority of U.S. Americans are economically worse off today than we were 50 years ago. The capitalist assumption that a rising tide lifts all boats does not seem to be true. What is true is that in a capitalist system, there are winners and there are fucking losers. The ceaseless and perpetual endless economic growth made possible by the employee, by the masses, is structurally meant to lift the fucking yachts of the few on the backs of the drowning masses. It's true. Capitalism can be good at creating rising tides, but for the many, those tides are less the fulfillment of human flourishing or individual communal and relational well-being and more an increasingly violent and unbearable storm. Capitalism as a system makes winners and losers out of everyone, whether they want to play the game or not. That's fucking squid game. You have no choice. It it structurally pits people against each other, whether it's employer against employee, capitalist against capitalist, nation against nation. It is written deep within the system's DNA. For example, look at the capitalist class structure of employer-employee relations. Capitalism structurally concentrates decision-making power in every business. It is by definition anti-democratic. Only a few get to have say in the how, in the what, in the where of production, while so many produce the surplus. 
Only a few appropriate and distribute the surplus how they see fit. It is hierarchical, exclusive, and essentially authoritarian. And this concentrated power leads to concentrated wealth. And the inequality of wealth is then invested into maintaining, enforcing if, with violence if need be, and expanding the structural inequality of power. Right? It's a cycle of wealth that gets power and it begets power and it begets wealth in a hyper-competitive market. If you have less than your competitor, you are most likely to lose. That's why everyone knows that the rich are getting richer in the rest of us, especially the most impoverished, impoverished of us, um, uh, are getting drowned. That's the good old rising tide of capitalist economies. And that is what it will forever do. Even if we say tax the rich a whole bunch, like fucking AOC's dress. After the Great Recession of 1929, um, uh, FDR started rolling out the famous New Deal, which included things like a massive federal employment program, unemployment insurance, social security, subsidized housing. Of course, all that primarily and exclusively went to white males and white women in heterosexual patriarchal marriages with those white males. But how did FDR pay for all of that in the first place? Well, he taxed the richest elite up to some 91% of their income. And just look what the business class, the capitalist class did. They convinced us to erode all of those laws. They undermined the newly imposed regulations on big business by buying politicians who would then roll back regulations and those laws that limited corporate power. And now they've nearly completely erased those policies that tried to some degree to redistribute the wealth. Here's a different idea. Don't let employers take the fruit of other people's labor in the first place. Democratize the workplace and the hierarchical employer-employee relations. The capitalist class structure of business is right get rid of those things in replacement with an internally democratic way of organizing the production appropriation and distribution of surplus with capitalism now being a global system the rising tide has not led to the lifting of all boats worldwide but it hasn't even lifted the masses of boats in the u.s Many Christian individuals and communities remain committed to the drug called ceaseless upward mobility that drives to compete harder uh, in, and accumulate more no matter how much the costs are for others. And even when that idea has exacerbated their own suffering, we cannot envision another way of being in the world than the one which concentrates wealth and power into the hands of a few while funneling the weight of the world and evenly upon everyone else. The inherent sociality of Paul's Christology, um, I believe, helps us to envision an alternative way of being in community, one that fundamentally contradicts the rising tide that lifts a few yachts, not unfamiliar to our society today. There seems to have been a good bit of inequality of power within the early Corinthian church, and it's this inequality that seems to have prompted Paul to write his letter in the first place. The first letter to the Corinthian community is constantly naming and critiquing their internal hierarchies, but the hierarchy structure that was taking hold within this early church also mirrored the, power, mirrored the power flows existing within the rest of their society. So when Paul talks about getting the inequality, talks about the, the, sorry, when Paul talks about the equality realized in the living body of Christ, he was aware that to embody an alternative way of being in community, to practice an alternative way of being in relationship to one another, would have caused problems for the political and economic structures of the top-down um, role 
that they have in many social and cultural norms that were exclusive in that time. And so when uh, in chapter 12, verse 26, he tells the members of this distorted and hierarchical community that in the body of Christ, quote, if one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Paul is not only messing with how the system in the net community were relating to one another. He's messing with the systems that benefited the Roman and the religious elite at the expense of everyone else. Paul knows that to embody the way of the crucified one is likely to lead to your own execution by the state powers. Paul's way of organizing our relationship in this letter starts with the most vulnerable, those who are pushed to the bottom and trampled, those who are disproportionately shouldering the weight of the community. To have a community built around the practice of if one suffers, all suffer, is to seek healing, restoration, and relational uh, well-being in the kingdom of God from the bottom up, not from the top down. In what could this possibly have to do with capitalism? Well, capitalism does not do that structurally. It literally does the opposite. It disproportionately funnels power and wealth to the top and forces competitors to win and at others' expense. A capitalist economy is not not, uh, at all one where one suffers, all suffer. Where one is honored, all rejoice economy. Instead, a capitalist society seeks to enrich and empower and bloat the few at the expense and the degradation of the many. Uh, We're getting passionate this season because um, it's winter. Well, it's not winter, but winter's coming. Uh, I'm watching Game of Thrones again. But winter is coming. It's getting colder. And for those of us who have shelter like four walls and heating. Uh, Winter represents a battle with the elements that reminds people, a whole swath of people, that um, they don't have much and they will never have much and that they have been forgotten. And uh, as the winter gets colder and we start cozying up in our homes, uh, more and more people on the streets die of hypothermia. Capitalist uh, class structure and economic structure chews up these people. These are our neighbors. I think of uh, that passage in Matthew. Um, Are we helping the Jesus on the streets? Are we helping our neighbor? Anyway, we're getting passionate and uh, preachy this season. Um, Burn Babylon down.